Chapter 18 of A Group of Famous Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. A Group of Famous Women by Edith Horton. Louisa May Alcott. 1832-1888. God bless all good women. To their soft hands and pitying hearts we must all come at last. Oliver Wendell Holmes. The following is said to be a description of Louisa May Alcott at the age of 15, written by herself, and published in her book called Little Women. She is supposed to be Joe, and her three sisters were the other little women. Joe was very tall, thin, and brown, and reminded one of a colt, for she never seemed to know what to do with her long limbs, which were very much in the way. She had a decided mouth, a comical nose, and sharp gray eyes which appeared to see everything, and were by turns fierce or funny or thoughtful. Her long thick hair was her one beauty, but it was usually bundled into a net to be out of her way. Round shoulders had Joe, and big hands and feet, a fly-away look to her clothes, and the uncomfortable appearance of a girl, who was rapidly shooting up into a woman and didn't like it. Louisa May Alcott was born November 29, 1832, in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Her father was Amos Brunson Alcott, a remarkable man known as a philosopher and educator. His views of education differed from those of most people of his time, though many of his ideas are highly thought of today. He became an important member of that circle of great men of Concord, known as Transcendentalists, and he counted Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry D. Thoreau among his closest friends. Miss Alcott's mother was the daughter of Colonel Joseph May of Boston and the sister of the Reverend Samuel J. May, a noted anti-slavery leader. Mrs. Alcott was a quiet, unassuming woman, intellectual in her tastes and accustomed from her childhood to the companionship of cultured people. Although an excellent writer, both in prose and verse, her home and her children were always her first thought. She herself never became publicly known, but her influence may be traced in the lives and works of her brilliant daughter and gifted husband. It is doubtful whether either could have achieved success without her guidance and sympathy. Thus, Louisa came into the world blessed with a heritage of culture and intellect. Her disposition was sunny and cheerful. Upon one occasion, when scarcely able to speak so as to be understood, she suddenly exclaimed at the breakfast table, I love everybody in this whole world, an utterance that gives the keynote to her character and nature. When she was about two years of age, her parents removed to Boston, where Mr. Alcott opened a school. The journey was made by sea. Louisa liked steam travel so well that she undertook to investigate it thoroughly. To the alarm of her parents, she disappeared, being found after a search in the engine room, sublimely unconscious of soiled clothes, and deeply interested in the machinery. Her father believed play as an important means of education, so Louisa and her sister were encouraged in their games. Her doll was to be a real-life baby, to be dressed and undressed regularly punished when naughty, praised and rewarded when good. She made hats and gowns for it, pretended it was ill, put it to bed, and sent for the doctor, just as any other normal little girl does. 
The family cat also came in for its share of attention at the hands of Louisa. No one was allowed to abuse or torment Pussy, but the children might play baby with her and rock her to sleep, or they might play that she was sick and that she died and then attend her funeral. All this sort of thing Mr. Alcott called imitation, and at a time when many good parents looked disapprovingly on children's sports, Mr. Alcott placed them in his system of education. These plays were so real to Louisa that she never forgot her joy in them, and years afterward she gave them out delightfully to other children in her stories. At seven years of age she began, under her father's direction, a daily journal. She would write down the little happenings of her life, her opinions on current events, on books she read, and the conversations she heard. This was good training for the future writer, developing the power of accurate thought and of clear and charming expression. In 1840, it became evident to Mr. Alcott that he could not remain in Boston. His views on religion and education were so much in advance of the people about him that his school suffered. Concord had long attracted the Alcott family, not only because it was the home of Emerson and others of high intellectual attainments, but because it offered a simple life and rural surroundings. And so it came that the family removed there occupying a small house known as the Hosmer Cottage, about a mile from Mr. Emerson's home. At that time, there were three Alcott children, Anna, nine years of age, Louisa, eight, and Elizabeth, five years. A boy born in Boston died early. A fourth girl named Abby May was born in Hosmer Cottage. These four sisters lived a happy life at Concord, although the family had a hard struggle with poverty. For Mr. Alcott, always a poor businessman, had lost the little he had in trying to form a model colony called Fruitlands. But all were devoted to one another. The children made merry over misfortune, and wooed good luck by refusing to be discouraged. They were always ready to help others, notwithstanding their own poverty. Once, at their mother's suggestion, they carried their breakfast to a starving family, and at another time they contributed their entire dinner to a neighbor who had been caught unprepared when distinguished guests arrived unexpectedly. Mr. Alcott first attempted to earn his living by working in the fields for his neighbors and by cultivating his own acre of ground. But this work, being uncongenial, he soon drifted into his true sphere, that of writing and lecturing. He supervised the instruction of all his children, but becoming convinced of Louisa's exceptional ability he took sole charge of her education, and except for two brief periods, she was never permitted to attend school. He was a peculiar man, this Mr. Alcott. One of his methods of guiding his children was to write letters to them instead of talking. The talks they might forget, he said, but the letters they could keep and read over frequently. Louisa had one letter from him on conscience, which helped to mold her whole life. Mrs. Alcott, too, would sometimes write to Louisa, giving her some advice or calling her attention to a fault or undesirable habit. On Louisa's tenth birthday, her mother wrote her as follows. Dear daughter, your tenth birthday has arrived. May it be a happy one, and on each returning birthday may you feel new strength and resolution to be gentle with sisters, obedient to parents, loving to everyone, and happy in yourself. I give you the pencil case I promised, for I have observed that you are fond of writing and wish to encourage the habit. Go on trying, dear, and each day it will be easier to be and do good. You must help yourself, for the cause of your little troubles is in yourself, 
and patience and courage only will make you what a mother prays to see you, a good and happy girl. To another letter received on her eleventh birthday, Louisa replied by writing these verses. I hope that soon, dear mother, you and I may be, in the quiet room my fancy has so often made for thee, the pleasant sunny chamber, the cushioned easy chair, the book laid for your reading, the vase of flowers fair, the desk beside the window where the sun shines warm and bright, and there in ease and quiet the promised book you write, while I sit close behind you, content at last to see, that you can rest, dear mother, and I can cherish thee. Louisa very early took upon herself the task of building up the family fortunes. When only fifteen, she began teaching school in a barn. Among her pupils were the children of Mr. Emerson. At this same period, we find her writing fairy stories, which she sent out to various editors. The editors promptly published these stories, but they sent her no money for them. But money she must have, so, besides her teaching, this enterprising girl took in sewing, which brought her little, but was better than writing stories for nothing. Louisa's intellect and ability did not make her vain. She was not ashamed to do any kind of honorable work. Since the father proved a failure in supporting the family, Mrs. Alcott tried to earn something by keeping an intelligence office as an agent for the overseers of the poor. One day a gentleman called who wanted an agreeable companion for his father and sister. The companion would be expected to do light housework, he said, but she would be kindly treated. Mrs. Alcott could think of no one to fill the position. Then Louisa said, Mother, why couldn't I go? She did go, remained two months, and was treated very unkindly, being obliged to do the drudgery of the entire household. After returning home, she wrote a story that had a large sale, entitled How I Went Out to Service. Surely Louisa Alcott had the ability to make the best of things, and to turn trials into blessings. At 19, she developed a great interest in the theater, and straightaway decided to become an actress. During her childhood, she had written plays, which her sister Anna and a few other children acted, to the amusement of the elder members of the family. Now she dramatized her book, Rival Prima Donnas, and prevailed upon a theatrical manager to produce it. The man who had her play in charge, however, neglected to fulfill his part of the bargain, and meanwhile Louisa's ardor for the theater cooled off. By the time she was 21, Miss Alcott was fairly launched as an author. Two years later, she published a book entitled Flower Fables, receiving from its sale the astonishing sum of $32. Then her work began to be accepted by the Atlantic Monthly and by other magazines of good standing. It was very difficult for her to write in Concord, where she continually saw so much to be done at home. When a book was in process of writing, she would go to Boston, hire a quiet room, and shut herself in until the work was completed. Then she would return to Concord to rest, tired, hungry, and cross, as she expressed it. While in Boston, she worked cruelly hard, often writing 14 hours out of the 24. Worn out in body, she would grow discouraged and lose hope, wondering if she would ever be able to earn enough money to support her parents. A dear and good friend of hers was the Reverend Theodore Parker. At his home, the tired, anxious girl was certain to receive encouragement and cheer. There she met Emerson, Sumner, Garrison, Julia Ward Howe, and other eminent men and women of the time. A few years before her death, she wrote to a friend, 
Theodore Parker and Ralph Emerson have done so much to help me see that one can shape life best by trying to build up a strong and noble character through good books, wise people's society, and by taking an interest in all the reforms that help the world. While in Boston, Miss Alcott found time to go to teach in an evening charity school. In her diary, we find these jottings. I'll help as I am helped if I can. Mother says no one is so poor that he can't do a little for someone poorer yet. At 25 years of age, Louisa Alcott was receiving not over 5 6 or $10 for her stories. This would hardly support herself, to say nothing of the family. Writing might be continued, but sewing and teaching could not be dropped. In 1861, when the Civil War broke out, her natural love of action, as well as her patriotism, caused her to offer her services as nurse. In December 1862, she went to Washington, where she was giving a post in the Union Hospital at Georgetown. The Alcott family had been full of courage until it was time for her to depart. Then all broke down. Louisa herself felt she was taking her life in her hands and that she might never come back. She said, Shall I stay, mother? No, no, go, and the Lord be with you, replied her mother, bravely smiling and waving goodbye with a wet handkerchief. So Louisa departed, depressed in spirits and with forebodings of trouble. She found the hospital small, poorly ventilated, and crowded with patients. Her heart was equal to the task, but her strength was not. In her diary, she tells us the events of a day. Up at six, dressed by gaslight, run through my ward and throw up the windows, though the men grumble and shiver, but the air is bad enough to breed a pestilence. Poke up the fire, add blankets, joke, coax, command, but continue to open doors and windows as if life depended upon it. Till noon I trot, trot, giving out rations, cutting up food for helpless boys, washing faces, teaching my attendants how beds are made or floors are swept, dressing wounds, dusting tables, sewing bandages, keeping my tray tidy, rushing up and down after pillows, bed linen, sponges, books, and directions, till it seems I would joyfully pay all I possess for fifteen minutes' rest. When dinner is over, some sleep, many read, and others want letters written. This I like to do, for they put in such odd things. The answering of letters from friends after someone has died is the saddest and hardest duty a nurse has to do. After six weeks of nursing, Miss Alcott fell seriously ill with typhoid pneumonia. As she refused to leave her duties, a friend sent word of her condition to her father, who came to the hospital and took her back with him to Concord. It was months before she recovered sufficiently even to continue her literary work, and never again was she robust in health. She writes, I was never ill before I went to the hospital, and I have never been well since. Her letters written home while she was nursing in Georgetown contained very graphic and accurate descriptions of hospital life. At the suggestion of her mother and sisters, Miss Alcott revised and added to these letters, making a book which she called Hospital Sketches. This book met with instant success, and part of the success was money. After that, all was easy. There came requests from magazine editors offering from two to three hundred dollars for serials. Her place in the literary field, being now an assured thing, her natural fondness for children led her to writing for them. The series, comprising Little Women, Joe's Boys, and Little Men, 
together with an old-fashioned girl eight cousins rose in bloom under the lilacs jack and jill and many others are books dear to the hearts of all children editions of all these books were published in england and in several other european countries where translations had been made of them all of which brought in large royalties for the author what happiness it must have given her to make her family independent and to be able to travel twice she visited europe the first time as companion to an invalid woman and a second time after she had earned enough to pay her own expenses miss alcott never married when about twenty-five years of age an offer of marriage came to her which most young women would have considered very flattering but she did not love her suitor and on her mother's advice refused him thus being saved from that worst of conditions a loveless union this first offer was not the last miss alcott received and declined matrimony she said had no charms for her she loved her family and her literary work above all she loved her freedom her health was not benefited by her second trip to europe excessive work had been too great a strain upon her and her father's failing health demanded her constant care in eighteen seventy seven mrs alcott died and in the autumn of eighteen eighty two mr alcott had a stroke of paralysis from this he never fully recovered louisa was his constant nurse and it gave her great happiness to be able to gratify his every wish about this time orchard house which had been the family home for twenty-five years was sold and the family went to live with mrs pratt the eldest daughter hoping that an entire change of air and scene might help her father miss alcott rented a fine house in lewisburg square boston to which she had him removed here she showed him every attention until her own health became so impaired that she was obliged to go to the home of Dr. Lawrence at Roxbury for medical care. A few days before her death, she was taken to see her dying father. Shortly after her visit, he passed away, and three days later she followed him. Born on her father's birthday, she died on the day he was buried, March 6, 1888. All her life, Louisa Alcott labored to make others happy, and she is still reaping her harvest of love the world over. End of chapter 18. Recording by Colleen McMahon.